0: Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find their opinions content expressed disturbing and objectionable.
1: Okay, so the the whole point of this this endeavor that you're watching right now, of us getting coffee, is is to reduce the amount of intellectual tension in the potential audience. So if they see us drinking coffee and uh, we have uh, lighthearted banter, then no matter how serious the topics get, then it's like, yeah, but they're drinking coffee and they're making fun of each other. (laughs) Okay, I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and this is Rotations. Uh, and we have uh, some interesting, really interesting guests this week, although we won't know where they're going to fall in the rotation, but just say that this week is uh, interesting for all of us about questions we have. And with that, I will give it over to Sarg Bakshi, the
0: host. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hello,
2: everyone. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, my name is Nisarg Bakshi. I'm a second year medical student. And today we're joined by Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, who, uh, among many other roles as a physician and as an educator, uh, serves as the director of the program for LGBTI health at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, um, one of the most respected programs of its kind in the country. Um, So we're excited to have have you on to discuss healthcare for the transgender community. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Dr. Ehrenfeld.
3: Thanks for having me. It's a delight to to be here in a a topic that I feel very passionate about.
2: Yeah, and and a timely topic as well. Uh, There's a lot happening in that field right now.
3: There certainly is. Um,
2: And, you know, transgender
3: people have been historically marginalized, cast aside, not recognized or acknowledged. And I think that as a society, um, significant progress has been made in the last five years, although over the last few months, we're sort of at this odd moment, I think, in our country's history um, as sort of the nation's appetite for tolerance seems to have uh, diminished. Um, and so, unfortunately, that is impacting patients that uh, we serve at our program and uh, you all are seeing from the country as well. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think that's why it's really important to have these kind of discussions, um, especially as medical students. You know, we'll, we'll be seeing patients like that someday, I'm sure. We're also Definitely. joined Definitely. by panelists uh, Nick Ingram, who's, who's been on a couple episodes now. We're happy to have him back. Thanks. It's great. great to be back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Jared, who's a first-timer on the show, um, he was a little, little cutting it close on time, but he made it, so we're happy to have you on. No <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so Dr. Ehrenfeldt, tell us about your work. Uh, what got you interested in working with the LGBTI community? Well, I've always been very passionate about taking care of LGBT patients. Uh, as a gay man
3: myself, I have had um, certainly my share of healthcare encounters that were less than ideal. When I was in medical school, I always recognized that I wasn't learning about how to take care of LGBT people. Um, and so when I got to a residency and took my first sort of faculty position, there was an opportunity to really explore this space. And it's become a significant uh, part of my portfolio, both in the
2: education space as well um, as programmatically and, and research as well. Uh, you mentioned that you had some less than ideal experiences um, as a gay man going to physicians. Can you describe those? What what were the kind of things they would say or do? Oh, sure.
3: It's it's the basic assumptions uh, that people who are often well intentioned make, such as asking, you know, about your girlfriend uh, or you know those kinds of things, and and those questions just put a patient uh, like myself, other LGBT people on alert that, you know, this is somebody who is making this assumption, they may not be accepting of me. Um, And because unfortunately, many LGBT people experience, you know, so much sort of stigma and discrimination, just in life in general, and going to a healthcare setting, obviously, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position, you know, you're often sitting there in a paper gown with your backside exposed, um, it's, it's a place where people um, are often looking for cues and signals. And when those cues and signals aren't aligned
2: um, with one's expectations, it can cause a lot of uh, tension. For those listening who may not know quite as much about this topic, can you define what a transgender person is? Oh, sure,
3: sure. Actually, it's probably worthwhile to step back and, and just go through a few related terms. Sex, gender, sexual orientation are, are all words that are important. You can think of sex as kind of the medically assigned identity. Um, the physical packaging, it's, it's driven by chromosomes and hormones, genitalia. Words like female, male, intersex, those are getting at sex that is quite different from gender identity and gender identity is really kind of the inner sense of being a man or woman or, or something else. It's, it's sort of how the, the mind and the heart think of the body and words that get at gender identity are things like man, woman, trans man, trans woman, those kinds of things. And that's again, related, but somewhat different from the concept of gender expression and and gender expression is how I communicate that gender identity to the world around me. It's, it's how I cut my hair, the clothing that I wear, the mannerisms that I adopt. And those things are related but distinct from sexual orientation, and that's who I'm attracted to. So um, just because I know something about your sexual orientation or patient's sexual orientation doesn't really tell me anything about their gender identity. And so it's important to ask questions about both, particularly in a primary care setting when you're trying to understand someone's social context and get them the right preventive screenings uh, so that you can really take
2: care of the whole patient. Just to clarify, do all transgender patients go through uh, some sort of surgical procedure to change their sex, or how does that work?
3: Not at all. So in, in a transgender person is just an umbrella term for somebody who's, gender identity differs from their sex assigned at birth. Um, and I have plenty of trans patients who change their name um, and their gender marker on their driver's license, uh, and that's all they do. They, they don't require um, medical or surgical therapy to affirm themselves to be functional and, and to be well. I have a whole other group of patients that really to affirm their identity um, and to be functioning, need hormonal therapy to uh, go through a transition, um, but have no interest in surgery. Uh, And then I have a different group of patients that I've interacted with that really, to go through that transition, um, need surgical procedures. I guess a key point that I would make is that every person's transition is unique. Uh, and different. And it's really important to understand what the goals of a transition for an individual patient are and how it keeps them healthy. And the reason that we are involved as physicians is really because we want to make sure that patients don't suffer from gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is a condition where someone has a functional impairment because of the challenges of going through uh, life with this disconnect between their um, gender identity and their sex assigned at birth.
2: At what point in the patient's life do you start seeing these uh, new gender identities take hold? Is it early on? It really varies on the patient. Um, We have seen kids as young as
3: four years old. We have seen adults much later in life express these ideas. Um, I think there's much greater awareness, both in the medical community and society in general, about what these things are and, and what they mean. But again, every individual's journey and recognition and articulation of these kinds of things is is different. And you know, as you probably know, kids when they're young often go through periods of experimentation and social transition and they may choose to dress with clothing of the um, opposite gender. And that may be just something that they're playing along with. And that's a very different sort of animal than someone who truly identifies as transgender. Um, And a key point that we always emphasize when we're talking about sort of teasing that out is it really takes well-trained multidisciplinary team to do an appropriate assessment and evaluation of a patient, whether they're an adolescent or an adult,
2: um, to make sure that we understand kind of what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And as a physician, then, what sorts of questions do you ask your patients um, to see if they are going through this process? Sure, absolutely. It's a great question. So um, a couple of um, key
3: ideas are, are these thoughts persistent? Are they consistent? And are the patients insistent um, that this is really who I am? Um, And if those three things happen repeatedly over time, um, then there's a pretty good chance, more likely... Um, that this is a patient who truly
2: has um uh the the concept of being transgender sure and and we kind of defined a lot of terms really quickly right there so i wanted to take a quick break and see if the panelists had any questions at this point uh well i, I was wondering uh if we can get more sample language of uh like how you're asking these questions to patients uh about being persistent consistent insistent sure so um you know if if
3: a child a uh, teenager says you know i really identify this way you know i was born male but i really identify as a woman um i would ask how long they've had those feelings um is this something that they've explored um with their friends and family have they um thought about what a transition might entail or what their goals of a transition might be. Um, I would want to know how this is impacting their their daily life. What, what kinds of obstacles are they encountering? Um, when they dress in sort of accordance with their birth sex, how does that make them feel compared to when they dress uh, or are addressed um, by the uh, identity which they, they affirm with. Those kinds of questions are things that sort of help explore where a patient is, where they're coming from, sort of um, how much thought they have put into these ideas. And, and I have plenty of patients who come um, not knowing very much at all. They, they, they know something doesn't feel right, um, but they may not have the words to really express what's going on, particularly in a younger patient um, that this language doesn't really mean, mean very much. Um, and I see lots of patients from rural parts of the country. Um, I live in, in Tennessee. Um, and, and I had a patient that I took care of that had never met another trans person, um, had, had talked to some people online and those kinds of things. Um, but again, every patient's journey is, is unique. And those are kinds of things that I would explore with patients and their families.
0: So, as a young medical student, um, what kind of advice do you have for approaching new patients? What kind of language should we avoid and, um, uh, during uh, physical
3: exams? Great, great question. So, you know, I think that recognize you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time, um, and if you if you make a mistake, that's okay. Just apologize and, and move on. But if you're coming from the right place in your heart, wanting to do the right thing for any patient, um, I think you'll discover that more often than not, you'll you'll find the right words. And so, you know, it starts with um, if you walk into an exam room and there's a patient um, and a family member, a loved one, a partner, um, don't assume who that person is. Ask. And, you know, I just... Uh, when I see patients, I, I extend my hand and I say, I'm Dr. Ehrenfeld. Thank you for coming. You know, what's your relationship to uh, our patient? And and, and and ask. I don't assume that it's the the mother or the boyfriend because I'm usually wrong. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and people bring all sorts of, uh, you know, interesting friends with them uh, to, to various medical appointments or when they're having surgery. And so that, that's a good starting point. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to make assumptions, um, and I think that you just really have to ask uh, before you uh, get too far down, down the pike. Um, you want to ask patients what name they like to go by, and I ask that of every patient. Um, it's helpful for my trans patients, um, but I have lots of patients that aren't William um, or Joseph. They're Billy, you know, or Bob or whatever it is. Um, and, and that helps develop rapport. You know, they don't want to be called by their, you know, legal full name. They go by their middle name or some nickname and and that's what they want me to call them. And so I ask all my patients, you know, what they want me to call them. And, uh, it's particularly important in a good way to affirm a trans person's identity. Um, but I think it's helpful for, for everybody.
2: Yeah, sure. And then those are are great questions. I, I had a question as well. Um, the statistics surrounding, um, transgender patients, especially in regard to their to their mental health, are astounding. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, why you, you know, what what's causing this sort of decline? Yeah, so the
3: um, one statistic that's commonly cited, and and there's some really good data from a 2014 study that came out that demonstrated that roughly um, 40% of trans people who had responded to that survey had reported attempting suicide. Um, And that's about 10 times the national rate. In America today, it's about 4% is the national average for um, a respondent who answers that kind of a question on a national survey, having reported attempting suicide. Um, So why is there that tenfold increase? Well, um, we know that um, trans people continue to be marginalized, stigmatized, and unfortunately experience um, a lot of stress. And um, there's this concept of um, kind of minority stress um, that wasn't really um, designed to describe um, what happens with um, LGBT people or trans people, um, but it really applies very nicely. Um, And basically what it sort of says is that when somebody experiences stress in life, you know, it can be internal stress, external stress, um, that actually then leads to Um, medical problems, and and we see that. We see higher rates of um, chronic illness and disease um, in marginalized populations that's not actually explained by the biology, right? And so we know that there's a societal impact on what's going on, Um, and it's not hard to imagine if you live in a world where you're rejected by society, um, it's hard to get a job, you get kicked out of school, that uh, one might um, turn to thoughts of suicide or, or develop other um, psychiatric um, challenges.
2: Yeah, sure. And you know you mentioned um, you know the societal pressure, and I think we, we're alluding to there is the stigma surrounding uh, the transgender population. And I was wondering how that stigma then, does that translate into the exam room at all? Uh, what sorts of things do they experience with their physician? It, it absolutely
3: does, and um, there was a, a survey in 2012 um, that came out um, that was really, frankly, it was rather shocking. It, 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 it demonstrated that um, trans people are often turned away from medical care. They're often, um, people use excessive precautions, gowns and gloves when they're not really indicated to perform an exam, um, that people are mistreated. Um, and uh, and that's that's hard uh, as a professional who's dedicated their life to health um, to sort of grapple with because I know that I would never intend to do that um, and uh, I hope that I haven't um, but I'm sure that all of us have said the wrong thing uh, or given off some signal that has contributed to that in some way and I think you know what's great about you know this opportunity to speak to you all today. Um, is that having some awareness of what that experience is like for a trans person or any other underrepresented group when they come into uh, the medical environment um, can be as we try to sort of make those things better.
2: Yeah, well, you know, what's, what's so crazy to me about that, especially is well, as of recording this podcast, the ACA hasn't been repealed. And, you know, I, with that in place, um, there's a non-discrimination clause that specifically states that transgender patients cannot be turned away. Um, how do... These positions that you're talking about, how do they get around that? That's you know federal regulation.
3: Uh, it's a great question. So unfortunately, the the status of the um, non-discrimination language in the Affordable Care Act um, is uh, in flux. Um, Section 1557, uh, which is the part of the law, has actually been enjoined. I'm told is correct legal term, um, and so that is going through the sort of legal process to sort of sort out whether or not that actually stands regardless of what the federal requirements are for coverage of services um, and non-discrimination in healthcare settings, um, it's just the right thing to do, right? And, 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 and no facility that I've been a part of um, would ever accept or allow or tolerate discrimination. Um, And uh, as a professional, you know, we all have an obligation to our patients and, and to health. And, you know, if, If you ever find yourself in a situation where, for whatever reason, you know in your heart of hearts you can't provide the best care for a patient, and that may be because you don't have the resources, you don't have the expertise, or there may be some other, you know, deep-seated, just congruent objection that you have, then the right thing to do is to refer that patient to someone else.
1: Mm -hmm. There is a problem, though, Dr. Ehrenfeld, and you know what it is, and that is establishing a relationship in the first place. And so once there's an establishment relationship, there's a duty. And so uh, I think it's, you know, I'll, I'll use an example because I appreciate your comments so far about the approach to transgender community. That it sounds like you have developed a program that's multidisciplinary in nature, and that touches basis with a lot of physicians' concerns, including my own, about I've known transgender patients that have reverted back to their assigned gender uh, or their born gender. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if that transition starts too young, have I done harm by administering hormonal therapy, by doing things that ultimately that patient said, that's not what I want in life? And so my preference is, if this is, and I would argue, it's highly specialized medicine. You're taking someone who has a genetic Mm -hmm. assignment and transitioning them to something else. I think that needs a lot of people who are very careful on the behavioral health side as well as the medical physiological side to really counsel that patient and work with them. That's some areas of expertise I don't have. Um, And I think it's, and it goes back to the point you just made where if you're a physician and you don't feel comfortable, I don't know that the assumption among the rest of the society should be that you're discriminating. It may just be, I don't feel Mm -hmm. comfortable dealing with this population. I don't know maybe the right words to say. I don't know if I want to establish a relationship and then have a duty when I don't even know where to begin. And, you know, we do this in medicine a lot, um, bronchitis. Everybody knows that looks at, you know, any kind of medical literature that you don't treat bronchitis, routine bronchitis with antibiotics, and yet we prescribe millions of prescriptions of this stuff. It demonstrates that, yes, while we have a duty to know about things, we don't as a a society of, of physicians in many cases. And so the regulations of MTLA, and I, I mean, I can tell you stories about treating HIV people in full-blown AIDS, and I couldn't get them uh, admitted into an ICU because as soon as mm-hmm. it turned out that they were had AIDS and they had pneumocystis and they were in a mess, the ICU, well, I'm, I'm out. I, I won't be here this week or whatever. Yeah. I don't assume, I, I mean, personally, I can say that guy's a coward, okay? On the other hand, it's not healthy for us as professionals to make that assumption about our colleagues. I'd rather just say, okay, maybe they did have to go out of town. It's just one of those bad days referring out of the ER where I can't find a lot of support. And so these are things that I think it's easy for us, especially as we have deep passions about medical issues, to maybe go down a little bit of a rabbit hole and, and start a non-objective assessment of colleagues. When going back to your original statements, I think they're really healthy. That that if the, if the LGBT community wants to have better acceptance of transgender patients, I think that there may be Uh, a good argument to say that they need to reach out to the conventional medical minds and say, look, we have very, very rigorous and robust programs by which we assess these patients, we help them through transition, and if you have a concern, call this number. Uh, one final example would be the HIV pepline at uh, UCSF. I use them all the time for post-exposure prophylaxis because mm-hmm. I don't know what the current antivirals yeah. are. It's not part of my practice, and they're awesome. And I want to put a plug in for them because they're available. They don't cost anything to us. The patient can call them anytime, and they're never pejorative about, well, doctor, you should know about you know the 15 different antiretrovirals you need to put your patient on. It's this is what I would do. They're awesome. Yeah. And so it sounds like that's where you guys are trending in your program But that's something that needs to be put out more, that there are these places and resources that people who just have no idea where to start can say, these are folks that really are trying to do a multidisciplinary approach to helping the patient make the best decision for themselves. So Sorry, I rambled, but...
3: No, no, no. I I really appreciate the point. What I think is an important distinction, and, and maybe this is a good way to frame it, is there's a difference between... Um, we don't talk about LGBT-friendly providers mm-hmm. because the expectation is, is that if you come to my medical center and, and you're a patient at Vanderbilt, that regardless of who you are, how you identify, you know, your, your background, whether it's race, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, we will take care of you and we will welcome you and your family. And, and, and that, that is uh, an expectation for everybody that we have for our employees that is different than competency and expertise. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. we don't actually talk about having LGBT-friendly providers. Some medical centers do. We have made a conscious decision not to use that language. We talk about having providers who have LGBT expertise who can then help provide appropriate, high-quality care. And I agree. Um, Transgender care, transgender medicine is specialized medicine. It Mm -hmm. does require um, additional training and expertise, and particularly on the adolescent side, oh, yeah. um, you know, the, the the national international guidelines call for a multidisciplinary qualified evaluation as someone begins transition. And, and I would not ask anybody who doesn't have a background to, to do that. But I do think it's important to recognize that as physicians, as professionals, we have an obligation to um, not decline to accept a patient because of something in their background or how they identify or who they are, um, that is different from not having the competency to take care of somebody. I, I'm not a pediatric provider. I, I, if you brought me your newborn child and asked me to do something for them, I, I would say no. And it's not because of who you are or, or, or what. It's because I don't have the expertise. I would refer you to a pediatrician that can provide the care. But I think that's an important uh, distinction to make.
1: So let me ask a follow-up to that. As a, as a clarification for Vanderbilt, if I'm an FP working in FP clinic, and uh, let's just make it a simpler case of a, a 30-year-old patient comes in that wants to change gender assignment, and I say, ah, this isn't really my area of expertise. I know people within Vanderbilt that can give you the best advice. Is, is, is the environment at Vanderbilt such that that FP does not take a hit for making that specialty referral and getting that assistance? Because what I, what I see from my perspective is there's a lot of name-calling, and there's a lot of, yeah. in the more radical sides of this debate, where people just assume that if someone is a sexist or a genderist or whatever ism they want to assign to them, when it may be something a little bit more benign of, they just don't understand, they don't feel comfortable. Yeah, they're, absolutely. Do you see what I'm saying? So is that I how bill operates?
3: And, you know, as a am an anesthesiologist, is, is my background, and, and I obviously work in LGBT health, but but fundamentally, I'm a consultant. Right. Yeah. And so whenever somebody calls me, if it's at three o'clock in the afternoon or four in the morning, um, they're calling because they need help. And, and I don't question their motivation. I answer the call and I'm delighted to provide help for the patient because they're calling me. And, and if that um, person in the clinics um, recognizes that this patient needs some specialized care, um, absolutely. We, we welcome those calls. And, and we have about 30 Um, providers across the system that have deep expertise um, in doing evaluation and providing management and and therapy, both in behavioral health and endocrinology and surgical services. Um, And part of our program's mission is really to connect patients with those specialized services so that they can get the the high quality care that they need.
1: I'm going to frustrate Nisarg one more time because (laughs) because I think it's as a practicing physician, I think it's important. Have you guys ever recommended against reassignment for a patient in your program? Are there people that come in that you say, look, we're not quite sure you're ready for this step yet. You you need to think about this more. Or is it just- Absolutely. Mis- okay?
3: Absolutely, no, and, and, and I think one of the difficulties is that you know, we, we try to provide good, high-quality patient-centered care, mm-hmm. um, but there are clear criteria for going through a transition, whether that's related to hormone management or surgical procedures, and not every patient is going to be Uh, Is going to meet those criteria or be ready. And whether that's because of behavioral health issue or because they haven't been uh, on hormone therapy for a certain period of time before surgery, whatever it is. Um, Again, we try to be uh, consistent with the international guidelines when we're providing care. Um, And that causes tension sometimes with patients, Um, just like when a patient shows up and they want antibiotics for their cold. Uh, It's not the right thing to do. And so we want to practice good medicine um, that does cause conflict sometimes with patients. Um, We do our best to try to help explain um, our perspective on what the right thing to do is. And um, sometimes patients disagree with that.
1: Yeah. Okay, I'm done. Sorry, you get you back know, on track. I do have no, a couple more questions the, for the second <laughs> half of this, but go ahead. Excellent. Yeah, go. no, they're, they're great questions. And I, I want to actually I know jump they back. Are. <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump back to
2: this Because I don't
1: know what the answer was until Dr. Ehrenfeld told me. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And, and there is something I wanted to bring up uh, that you mentioned, Dr. Ehrenfeld, about uh, physicians becoming LGBT experts or, or building that expertise. Uh, what is that process like? Is, is there a course that physicians take? Or how does that work?
3: Yeah. Wouldn't it be great? So, um, there are starting to become some fellowship programs in LGBT health, although that's a new phenomenon. Um, typically it's been people have a a passion, um, for learning about how to provide this care, um, and then seeking out, um, the knowledge. Um, there are now, um, two textbooks, um, about LGBT health. Um, I happen to write one of them, uh, with a colleague,
1: uh, who's now at, um, Pittsburgh. Do you have a copy Um, of it there?
3: Uh, I do.
1: I do. I Put it, it up on the screen so we can all yeah. show it. We'll, we'll freeze it. We'll freeze it because No, this is serious business. I mean, students who are interested in this. Need to be able to look, look at your Look at the name. Okay. <laughs> cool. Awesome.
3: Um, I hope someday there are a dozen textbooks, you know, and uh, and we need resources, we need materials for people to learn. Um, across curricula, there's starting to become more content, there are more standardized cases available for all sorts of training programs to use and to benefit from, um, but we're not quite there yet. And unfortunately, um, there are still students graduating from schools all across the country that really have not had much exposure at all to this topic, that's a shame. Um, I know that that's starting to change. Um, at Vanderbilt, I can tell you that no student graduates without having um, moderate exposure to LGBT care. Uh, we don't expect that every student is gonna, you know, make that their life's work and passion, but I do expect that um, any student that leaves our uh, training program here um, at least knows how to introduce themselves to a patient uh, and, uh, and do so in a, in a culturally sensitive way. And 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 that's
1: so important, I think. We got like one more and then we got a break. Yeah,
2: sure. And let's open it up to the panelists. then if you guys had any questions and you want to jump in before we break. Yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I I have a question then. Um, You know, you mentioned that every student at Vanderbilt gets that moderate exposure. What does that look like? Uh, Do they just follow you around in the clinic for a day or do they get to watch uh, some sort of procedure? How does that work?
3: Yeah, we're actually very intentional about it. Um, On the uh, very first day of medical school, um, we give our students a case, um, and that case involves a a lesbian patient. Um, And so um, we make sure that we have um, cases and scenarios and learning objectives embedded on our four-year curricula. Um, And there are some deep um, experiential opportunities that all of our students um, go through. So when our students rotate on pediatrics, um, we do a session where there's a little didactic time, um, and then we bring in um, LGBT youth, um, and they actually meet one-on-one with our students to learn about what it's like to be bullied in school or kicked out of your home and come into the healthcare system and, and be afraid. And, and And that experience is actually, I think, one of the more powerful things that we do for for our um, students on pediatrics, and it's, it's really a transformative kind of thing. And So we have things like that that are embedded in the curriculum, and then we have also optional experiences for students who want deeper knowledge uh, around the topic. So we have a, a month-long elective that's called Sex, Sexuality, and Sexual Health. Um, we have an interdisciplinary science course. Um, we have an interdisciplinary course that we co-offer in our n- school of nursing with the School of Medicine, um, and then uh, other, other opportunities for students that want to, to go beyond kind of the basic knowledge that we expect everyone's going to get.
2: That's, that's awesome. Uh, and I think that would be great to implement in schools everywhere. I think we'd really benefit from it. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Dr. Ehrenfeld. We're, we're going to break off here uh, and then continue on this conversation um, next week. Sounds good. Excellent. Thank you. And thank you to our panelists for joining us.
0: Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication. The guests on Rotation are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Ryan Schropp, Mara Leindecker, and Ryan Vajitas. Produced by Todd Fredericks, engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical, and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediainmedicine.com rotations.